Save or die, number 62, email Orama. We are catching up with piles of email, voicemails, etc. And boys in a pile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been bad and we've allowed a huge backlog of correspondence to get out of control, so we're going to try and rein it in and get back on track. Yep. As usual, DM Mike with DM Glenn and gonna, DM Liz. We're gonna put a we're gonna put a dent in that old mailbag this time. Well, to to our credit, with the, doing the other Attack of the Clones, those usually take so much time in and of themselves. We right. don't really feel like we have time to do email as well. I know they. But always, anyway, they can always hear me coming with an email show. No show notes. Yeah, let's do the emails. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, if you guys don't like emails or don't care about voicemails, then you probably want to skip this episode. So, On the other hand, if you did send us an email, you could be featured in this episode. That's right. And this brings us up to, to uh, you know, clears out the email bag. So if you send us an email or a voicemail and you don't hear it here or in prior episodes, we dumped it. No. Yeah, we didn't get it. We didn't get it. Please send it again. Or Glenn dumped it. No. I or he sent it to Thank God. I had access to the inbox for a long time. I think they yeah, did it he, purpose. He it and, and sent it to Thanko's Hammer. Yeah, something like that. So what have you been doing in gaming, Mike? Ah, yes. Glenn's going to keep his favorite section. <laughs> so, well, I finished uh, Fantasy Role Playing by Dr. Holmes. How was it? Yeah, it was good. It was good on the whole. Um, he was surprisingly promoing, promoing AD&D. No kidding. To my surprise, over over basic. But, you know, this was before the Moldvay cook, and basic expert really went its own direction. So I guess I can forgive him a little for that. So did you, did you, like, did you like, see his other hand out and back with Gagax slipping him the money or something? or? I don't know. I, as I said before, I was very surprised that he got permission to use actual names and details from a whole bunch of different RPGs from I a think, whole bunch of companies. I think that, yeah, I think that was before they started to get extremely litigious and uh, yeah, they probably crazy. At, yeah, they probably looked at it as oh, free publicity. Sure, go ahead. Which is really what they should have done. But anyway. Um, to a question you asked in 61, Glenn, no, they did not cover champions. The That's only superhero game they covered was Superhero 2044. Well, thinking back about, uh, thinking back on it, that's probably right considering the time period that book was published. Yeah. 
Yeah, so... So there would not have been mutants and masterminds or villains and vigilantes right. out yet? Oh, and that's right. That's a good point. V&V would have been out. Now, did they have Gamma World in there or just Metamorphosis yes. Alpha? They had both. Okay. Or he had both. Okay, that gives me some idea what, the, what was going on at the time. Yeah, and um, he covered the Morrow Project. Of course, Traveler. Traveler, yeah. Um, Star Patrol. Um, so, yeah, some really obscure games. I'm kind of surprised he didn't cover B&B. And Arduin. <laughs> and Arduin, yep. He covered Arduin Grimoire. Um, good. So, yeah, I, it was a good game. Um, good book. Unfortunately, that's been the limit so far. Um, I'm really wanting to jonesing for basic again, so I'm hoping to find maybe eventually a Skype game or something to join. Because mm. it's apparently the uh, first edition Book of Sorrows game has gone by the wayside, apparently. We haven't met in over a month. So. Uh, maybe it's just maybe it's just holidays and it'll pick back up again with the new year. Maybe, but I don't, don't know. Do After two E I'm really jonesing for basic expert. Maybe you could run something. I want to play something. <laughs> okay. But anyway, that's what I've been doing. Oh uh, what well, I'm gonna go. Uh, what I've been doing is I had my basic game yesterday. Haha ha, Mike. Um when, and RC. Yeah, it's basic, okay. Um, yeah, we went through more of Barrow Maze. We had fun with a 10-foot a pit that had a teleport, a one-way teleportation at the bottom. Ooh. Yeah, two of, our, two of our members failed their dex roll and fell in, and they ended up in another section of the dungeon. I put a rope down there. They found the rope. They yanked the rope and yanked me through. Oh, nice. So much (laughs) Well, we found out we were were too far away, so. (laughs) One of my old DMs had a similar trick, except I don't know if he made it up or got it from somewhere. But anyway, the teleport at the bottom of the pit Uh teleported you to the ceiling right above the pit. Oh, God. Ah. Claim. So you just kept falling and falling and falling. But the advantage, though, is that for people that didn't fall, you always had a chance to try to grab them and yank them out of the cycle. But I'd like to just take bets, sit there and go. <laughs> uh, no, what was funny before I did that, I put the, first I put the rope down, and one of the characters grabbed it. And then the three of us that were left, we all yanked on the rope, and they said it's a one-way teleport, so he can bang his head on the ceiling. <laughs> one of the... One of the basic expert games. I can't remember if it was basic expert or castles and crusades. But uh-huh. Anyway, one of those. Remember when I was running that, Liz, and there was the statue that Robert's knight character. Yeah, it was castles and crusades because he was a knight character. He touched it and it teleported him into that room with the doppelganger. Oh, yeah. And I was real timing. You know, basically I was timing what uh-huh. happened with the rest of the party. And for however long it took them to touch it too and go with him, he had to fight by himself. Liz touched it almost immediately. Her magic user went in there. Yes, my weenie magic user, who probably should have known better, you know, decided wherever he went, he shouldn't be there alone. So I go. The other people with actual armor and weapons are basically dithering about what should we do? What happens? What if it's a trap? (laughs) Yeah, the elf fighter magic user, the dwarven fighter, and the... Uh, human cleric thief uh-huh. 
are sitting there debating <laughs> yeah. and debating and debating. And finally, they get the idea to pick up a a, no, a knoll carcass and touched it, touched the statue with the knoll carcass <laughs> to see what would happen. But since they were holding on to the knoll carcass, they, they all teleported it. in. But by then, the knight was at negative hit points. <sighs> the doppelganger had been killed. And the magic user was out of spells, so she had bound his wounds and was sitting there rereading her book as they finally appear with a dead knoll. And yeah. It's like, well, we're in this room by ourselves. I'm just going to yeah, study the, my spells while yeah. I'm waiting. The exit was a secret door, which, of course, Liz's human magic user could not find. So mm. we're, we're, play, we're playing the rule cyclopedia, so we're using the uh, skills. And... Um, they like it, the fact that they said, you know, the good news is I have the healing skill in case, you know, the clerics can't, you know, fix you up. I can patch you up temporarily. The bad part is I have an intelligence of 10. Ooh. And. So it's an int check? It's an int check, yes. So 50-50. <laughs> right. So it's like, I'll try, but. <laughs> My character is convinced <laughs> that you should eat this deadly nightshade yes. to make you feel better. <laughs> Because two negatives make a positive. So poisoning yourself will while wounded means that you'll come out a neck at neck advantage. Yeah. Okay. What else happened? Oh, I also got believe it or not, I got Dawn of the Emperors at half price books for six bucks. Nice. Minus the box. But I got everything. Well, that's really all you need, unless you're doing it specifically as a collectible. No, no, it's, it's a working collection. Yeah, and, so. And you get this, my B4, got the Lost City. Mm-hmm. I opened it. It has. It wasn't shrink-wrapped. I opened it, but this thing is near mint. That's cool. Wow. And it's first printing. That's cool. Uh, I just, like, I was, uh, didn't they? Like, <laughs> they never, they opened it, and, like, they put it away. Which is probably what happened, which yeah. is a pity. Because that's had, a great... It had that new book smell. It was great. What is a new book smell, exactly? It's, just that, it's the ink and, you know, how you it's freshly printed and they just wrap it up. It's paper, yeah. It's paper, you, you go, oh, it's like a new car, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they just spritzed it with new book smell before sticking <laughs> it on the shelf. Probably. And and I'm going to be playing Savage Rose and my grandson. Anyway, how are you doing, Liz? <laughs> I'm doing fine, thank you. What have you been doing? Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, final exams are coming up, so I've been doing not as much gaming-related stuff this past week as I would like, and I'll be doing even less this coming week. So, so I, uh. <laughs> once once the winter break comes, though, I should have plenty of time to read up on things and do stuff and relax. Maybe we can get you in that Skype game that Mike is going to run. Hey, maybe. That's, That's a great idea. Yeah. There you go. You got Mike Bottolato's running a Skype game <laughs> of... Awesome. <laughs> oh, good, Mike. <laughs> there you go. you got two players already. You know, it's been so long since Bad Mike has been on OSR Gaming. I think most people don't even get it when I say DM good at, you know, good Mike or good at. You're really wanting to dump that, aren't you? <laughs> no, I just, I, what I want is Bad Mike to show up more. So, you know, so the additional irony is, is evident. But well, I don't... Why don't we get Bad Mike to be a guest DM, which will be really confusing because 
vocally, the two of you sound very much alike. So it would be really mind-blowing to have you both on the same show and people are going, which one is that? <laughs> yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll never happen. Probably It'll not. never happen because he still has a bad router. And yeah. despite our entreaty, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna be playing. You're walking down the hall. You run to a great big, great big, big exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like some of our shows. <laughs> no, no, no. Speaking uh, of shows, okay, let's get right back into the voicemail, shall yeah. we? Yeah. Alrighty. Who we got first? Well, I believe our verse, yeah, our first voicemail is from DM Kojo. Okay. Let's give a listen. Hello, Sodcasters. This is DM Kojo calling in with a question about Monty Hall campaigns. I fear that I have become a Monty Hall DM in my current campaign. I blame it on being rusty after 22 years of not DMing. But um, my players are getting way too much money, way too much magic items. It's creating difficulties in my creating appropriately challenging adventures for them. Um, so how do I undo this short of ending the campaign and starting over? I don't want to just take stuff away from them that they have earned through my own fault, but uh, I don't know how much longer I can continue on the path that I'm going. My other question is, I'd love to hear the different hosts say which classic module or adventure they think is the most enjoyable uh, to run as Dungeon Masters or play in, and, and why is that? Thanks. Keep up the good work. See you later. Okay. Well, thanks for the voicemail. Okay, Monty Hall. How to fix a Monty Hall campaign. <laughs> Sorry, son. There's no hope for you. Oh, there there are ways. There's I mean, ways well, I do know a twelve step program. Okay, so. Well, I will say, and you know, this is going to be discussing our two E group that we're in. But you know, when not- we were playing in our last campaign, the DM had given the group some pretty major magical items cool. that we probably should not have had. And, and treasure yeah, in millions. Yes, an awful lot of money, too. And he started a systematic campaign to suck us dry of money and magic. Uh-huh. And it took quite a few sessions of playing, but... You know, he was able to, you know, start to get us back down to something vaguely resembling realistic. Of course, to Um, be fair, he was running us, you know, basically we were doing the stronghold slash build a city type thing out in the wilderness, which Uh can suck up a lot of cash. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so depending on what your group's levels are, if you can get them either interested in or have the campaign run in a direction where it is necessary for them to build a stronghold at a strategic place, you could probably, you know, get rid of a lot of their money and magical items too, depending on if you've got, you know, special dwarves doing specialty work for you and all they right. want is magic as opposed to money. You know, especially if you have any, if there's any weapons or anything that 
they believe, you know, oh, that's obviously of dwarven make, and we'd like to have that back. You know? Sages are another good way. Yes. Rather, than, rather than dropping them clues for adventures, make them go to sages to find out stuff. And if they get a lot of suck up get mm-hmm. gold too. Yeah, because you know they get a lot of magical items. They don't know what it is. They'll be gladly to take thousands, thousands you can throw at them to find out what they do. Unless their magic user has an identify spell. Yeah. Yeah. And you might have to barter with a Which dragon for information, and they'll want magic. <laughs> or, you could, or you could do what my DM Matt did if, about six games ago, uh, have us run into a lot of level-draining undead and have the temple charge $1,000 per level restored. <laughs> you mean... 1000 gold pieces per level restored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, well, that was where I was going to get to, you know... Depending on your players, because, you know, if if you've given them all this stuff and then you're too heavy-handed with taking it away, they're going to get pissed and say you're being unfair. Yeah, so you may have to do this over a fairly long period of time so that it doesn't look like you're gunning for them. <laughs> Even if though you, you are gunning for them, yeah. If you can't, then, yeah, you might just have to restart the campaign. But try at least to to drain it down with other charges. You know, I, I've seen these. I've seen these. What do you do with the money hole dungeon stuff before? From Dragon Magazine all the way into the internet, and it's always like the we give them. You know, like we were doing, we give them great ideas on how to drain the stuff, but the why is left up to the DM because. And nobody, it's a ma- Go ahead. Nobody gives them any advice on how to do it uh, elegantly, subtly, some way where it doesn't piss off the players. Well, and to a degree, it's subjective to your group. It's like a killer DM. Yeah. You know, some people have a killer DM. Other people play with that DM and go, well, no, he's tough, but he's not a killer DM. Yeah, right. tough you know, but fair. Yeah. Tough but fair, yeah. It's all how your group perce- perceives how the game's going. Right. Um, and to be fair, I, he didn't specify, or I didn't catch it, but Basic Expert Plus gives... You know, original D&D gives a lot of gold. It yeah. does. It does. And they're published stuff. So I can see how this can sneak up on a DM who's not necessarily paying attention. Um, there's also Sick of Thieves Guild on them. Yeah, that'll work. You know, because if they're carrying around 5,000 gold, it's going to be pretty obvious. Our group, and, my early D&D group a long time ago stopped buying horses. It was a it was a it was a gold piece sink because every time we go in a dungeon somebody steal the horses or so we we camp and somebody would steal the horses or everywhere we went somebody steal the horses. Well, I can see if they don't have a guard. I mean, and that's another thing. Hirelings. Yeah. Hirelings and henchmen can suck up gold. For instance, you're going into a dungeon with horses. Hire a few henchmen to watch them. Yeah. Or a couple of a couple of mercenaries to watch your back. They ain't cheap. No. No, because yeah. a lot of them, you know, will go in for shares. Yeah, because that's their line of work. That's their bread and butter right there. So, anyway, hopefully that'll help. And the second question was... Was our favorite modules. Liz? Basically. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know how to choose. I am going to go with... Roll a d12. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to say that out of out of our out of the stuff we've done, I I love Judges Guild. I've said this before. 
you know, they have that wild and wooly feel of early gaming where anything can happen and you can literally run into anybody right. in the town. <laughs> they're, um, they're all those wild West Joel towns and stuff. And, and, yeah. Um, so I really, I really liked City State of the Invincible Overlord as a setting, but I suppose as an adventure, probably my favorite is still going to be Tejel Manor. Hmm. It's goofy, and that's part of why I like it. But <laughs> it's also, it's also dangerous too, and you've got some weird stuff going on. You can be in one room that's pretty tame for a first through third level character and then you can very easily wander into another room that's got something that is way out of your league and you need to get the crap out <laughs> go from a arthritic kobold in the next room a balrog ah! you know, you've got a bunch of skeletons playing poker in a room yeah. you know I, I like that <laughs> I like the two rates arguing over soup. <laughs> yeah. Here, taste it. Does it taste all right? Okay, fine. I, I, I like the wraith who was teaching the, the class of zombies you know, <laughs> the proper garroting technique, and he was up there with a lectern, and all the zombies are in desks. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Glenn? Oh, mine? Okay. Um, I want to say keeping the Borderlands, only because I'm colored by the fact that I play in Bad Mike's game every year at North Texas RPG Con, and I have a blast at that game. Mm-hmm. With or without Liz. Preferably with Liz, because, you know, she did the sword thing, and I was, like, totally impressed with that. I was pretty impressed, too. I did not expect to actually succeed at that. You really dominated that sword, and I loved it. And and, yeah. and like that other girl who lost her character and took a henchman who turned out to be a better character than the one she had. Oh, yeah, the henchman. The henchman. Totally kicked ass. The henchman <laughs> who turned into an adventurer. I love mm-hmm. that. But I've got to say, i got to say my favorite one is a Judge's Guild one, too. And, it's, and I also offer the caveat that I've never played in it. Because I didn't know anybody who ran it, or I never got a chance to run it. He's Glory Hold Dwarven Mine. I have never played that one either. It has the potential to be a real farce of a dungeon crawl because you've got four or five factions, that's not including the player characters, in there for their reasons to be down there. And at the bottom, there's a demon. An old abandoned dwarf mine. Old dwarf mine where the dwarves found a buried demon. Where have I heard that before? It's a classic. But let me tell you, it's great. I mean, you've got... You've got Thundar! Thundar the Barbarian, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> not the player characters. You've got the disgruntled human miners who were fired from the dwarves when the dwarves, that happened because they wanted to close the mine. There's a faction of dwarves saying, okay, they're hiding something. There's stuff down there. We want it. You know, another faction. You've got this miner 49er and his daughter who are actually serial killers. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It's you like, know? you know, some of it's goofy, but then you've got... The serial killers. And like, where did, I guess like you were saying, Liz, some things are goofy with Judges Guild and then other, out of nowhere, like, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah but, holy but crap. Holy <laughs> crap. Well, I say it, I don't get, the, I don't get the funhouse vibe like I do Tetral Manor. And Tetral Manor is fun. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna give it props for that. But this one is like, you got too many, you can run into anybody or anything in there. Not just the monsters, which makes it, fun for me 
kind of sounds kind of tiring DM wise, but <laughs> well, a lot of Judges Guild stuff, you've really got to be on your ball if you're going to DM it. Oh yeah. Um, How about you, Mike? There's too many tegels. I, I mean, too many uh <laughs> I like. So I'm, I'm going to totally avoid that. Tegels. No, tegel, tegel is a big one, except when the first level characters decide, hey, let's go into the tower first on the side. But anyway. Seemed tactically like a sound plan. And it did. That was the worst part. I couldn't go, you think that might be a really bad idea? Because on the face of it, it does make sense, except there's a lich in there. But um, Maybe he was sleeping. <laughs> I did. Well, remember, I had you guys go in, and you saw the alchemist lab of a great wizard, which seems like it's been being used recently. Hint, hint, hint. But anyway... Um, I'll say I'm on a tie between B2 and B4. Okay. I have never actually run B4. I played in B4. I never finished it. Mm-hmm. But B4 strikes me as something that would make a great campaign all by itself. Yeah. It would require some work, and you'd have to have players who are okay with a campaign being a, a mega dungeon. But... I think it would be a lot of fun. So I guess to to run, I would like to run B4. To play in, I like B2. More fun for the DM on B4, huh? Yeah, if they're willing to do more work. Or if I, yeah, I'd be willing to do more work. It's just it's hard, actually, to find players who are okay with an entire campaign being in a dungeon. Okay. Um, well, a lot of people had, are okay there. I've had trouble finding at least face-to-face groups of people who wanted to do that. Most of them want, you know, well, I want a choice. I want, you know, in a dungeon, but then I want wilderness, and I want extraplanar. Yeah, well, I can get that way, too. It's like I want a complete story, not just wandering around in a dungeon for all this time, even though I'm doing that now in my basic game. But there's a story behind it, so, okay. And there's a story behind uh, B4, too. Exactly, exactly. You got a yeah. goal. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for the voicemail. Yeah, thanks, Koja. All right. Our second voicemail is from Vic Shade. What a heck of a name. <laughs> hey, this is Vic Shade. I'm still listening to the episode about dragons. It's like episode seven. And you guys are talking about if the dragon was raised properly. I've always, as a GM and even as a player, I guess, gone on the premise that human beings have free will. We can make choices about how we're going to behave. Some of the other races, most notably like demi-humans, dwarves, elves, halflings, gnomes even, they have that free will. Even to an extent, like all dwarves have compulsions, you know, elves have compulsions about how their mannerisms affect their behavior. I don't have elves who love the city life. It just doesn't happen. And it's because people think the human mindset should apply to every living creature. It doesn't. Not every living creature has that free will and that diversity about it. That's what makes humans human. That's what makes them special and unique in a world full of monsters. Things act the way that they act. It may not be the best solution. It's certainly not the only solution, but it's the one that I've always gone with. And I've already sent my email, so I'm nagging you on the phone now. Keep making awesome podcasts. Well, thanks, Shade. Thank you, Vic. Fair warning, everybody. This was almost the Vic Shade Show. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. There's going to be a lot of emails coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's an interesting idea about free will versus instinct or compulsions. Um, I don't, it's not how I generally play it, but I can see a cogent argument for doing it that way. And it would certainly be an interesting, you know, way to do it for a change of pace, a little bit different from your average, you know, fantasy novel where, yeah, where everyone more or less tends to act and react the way humans are, the way humans do. Um, humans with pointy ears. Yeah. Or short humans, yeah. Yeah, true. Um, and yeah, as long as the, your players know ahead of time that that's how you play the demi-humans, so if they decide to run a demi-human character, then, you know, they have fair warning, then nothing wrong with that to at me, all. To me, there's always going to be instinct, instinct, instinct. There's always going to be the one demi-human who wants to cast off their their tribal or whatever lot in life and go do something different. And by definition, I would say an elf or a dwarf or a halfling who went adventuring, at least in my opinion, by definition, is someone a bit unconventional among their people. Or gnome. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get your gnome hate. I mean, yeah, I get it, but I don't get it, okay? Let's just hate is strong a word. I just find Thank you. Thank you, because that's what I was going to confront you about. It's like hate <laughs> is too strong. No, I just find them useless. Okay, fine. I can deal. I can. I can deal with that. You're wrong, but I can deal. With <laughs> <laughs> what an arrogant statement to make! Oh, wait a minute. That's my anyway. <laughs> Let's go to some actual emails, shall we? Good enough for ages. That's a good idea. Before I investigate my my comments a bit further. <laughs> Your ass, Mike. No, sorry. No, that just sort of came out. Never. <laughs> you can pass on this. Anyway. What do we got? Um, trying to call up the email right now. Here, Abel. Here, boy. Here, boy. I cast summon email. As my Word document has decided that I'm going to scan this for viruses. Okay. Well, I'll just sing us in. Letters. Okay. Oh, we got letters. We got letters every day for D and D. We got letters. We got. Let, let me know when you're done. Uh, okay, uh, I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. Our first email is from the Angry Monk. No. Angry Monk. Yay. Angry Monk, um, yeah. Angry Monk writes. Hi, Sodcasters. I really enjoyed your review of Barrow Maze and your interview with Greg Gillespie. As soon, <laughs> as soon as the show finished, I bought a copy. Right on. I'm, I'm looking forward to your review of Labyrinth Lord. I was wondering if you had ever discussed the possibility of players adjusting their characters' ability scores as per the Moldvay rules, page B6. I had never really noticed this note about lowering certain ability scores in order to raise others. What is your opinion of this? I, th- I think we covered this, didn't we? Who knows? It's been so long. Well, I know. Well, when he wrote this, he said he was looking forward to our review of Labyrinth Lord, and it was in the Labyrinth Lord episode that we were talking about. it just went up today. Yeah. So listen to the Labyrinth Lord episode. We do talk an awful lot about 
the lowering and raising of ability scores and how I totally had forgotten that you can't do anything to Constitution and Charisma. And yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just reiterate that um, we did it way back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Uh-huh. But for the most part, when I run a game, I generally let people put the numbers where they want them. So it never really comes into play much. Me too. And I'm surprised they didn't put that into AD&D. Mm. Although there are times when, even though you are allowed to put the numbers where you want them, you've, say, rolled a whole bunch of 12s and 13s, and you really want to get at least one of your scores up to something vaguely you know, like a plus one or plus two. Right, yeah. So there there are instances where even though you do put the numbers where you want them, you do still want to raise at least one of your scores up. I haven't had that happen often, though, for some reason. Preferably the prime requisite. What was it? The the prime requisite. uh, um. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Kripke. (laughs) I heard there was a waffle. (laughs) When When is is the waffle? I like to play Uh, D&D. Anyway, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, you'd like to have your prime requisite just to get that, like, you know, experience boost. Yeah, yeah, we were totally oblivious to it. (laughs) (laughs) To tell you the truth. Okay. So, Angry Monk goes on to say, Also, I've finished a copy of my house rules. I've borrowed ideas from many sources. Cough. GM Mike's cantrip rules. (laughs) My attempt is to make my basic expert game more cinematic. I would sure love other people's knowledgeable opinion. If you're interested, I could send you a copy. They are by no means original ideas, but I think they would be fun to play. I haven't play tested them yet. Have a good Thanksgiving, the Angry Monk. I, for one, thank you, Angry Monk. Yeah. I, for one, would like to see them. Yeah, sure. And as far as the cantrips, you probably ought to thank Liz more than me because that was – she made me do it. I made him. She made me. It's true. Uh, he, he said the magic word cinematic, and <laughs> now I'd like to see him. Um, I would suggest one thing from another game that you should at least read, if, if not implement – or, or implement. I mean, it's not a system. It's just a way of doing things. Uh, if you can find yourself a copy of the old D6 Star Wars game from West End Games, read the read the main rule book, and it'll talk about starting a game in media ray. Oh, in the middle of the action? In the middle of the action. That'll get it going cinematically faster than I can think, and it's a really good chapter. Um, I tried to. I I tried. I don't get. So no, we meet in the bar. No, you don't. <laughs> You're in the middle of the dang dungeon. All right. <laughs> Mike did that with us in one of his games where we started out and we were suddenly we were on the deck of a ship. Ah. We had we had been in a tavern, and then just suddenly a, a malfunctioning monster summoning spell. suddenly brought us to the deck of a ship that was being attacked, and we had no idea where the heck we were or what was going on, and it's like, ah! (laughs) They were 2,000 miles away. It was an idea I had to get characters together without the ubiquitous, you all meet in a tavern, and then spend two and a half hours, because everybody wants to role-play their characters actually meeting, 
Oh, like, no, I'm going to stick you in a position where, you know, you're all together, like it or not. Now that's the way to start a game. And it worked. It worked. Everybody immediately started, you know, they had a, a, a bond together in that they're all from a tavern. They have no idea where they are now, what's going on, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, you, you immediately... You immediately transport them someplace like that, like a five-deck ship, and just let them go. So it was a two-deck ship. <laughs> you sure, Mike? I am positive. <laughs> it wasn't Any- a floating hotel or anything. That and you know, you also here's a good place to look, at least in Silver Age uh, comic books, superheroes. They're always stumbling into something in the middle of something, <laughs> you know, and they have to deal with it. And if you don't want to deal with superheroes, yeah, um, a lot of the Savage Sword of Conan, uh-huh. the Warlord series, Red yeah. Sonja, I mean, some of them were cheesy, but others, you know, I mean, let's face it, virtually every issue was try to get them into a new scenario. And, well, yeah, and you found know, to have some good ideas there. And, you know, it doesn't have, in media rate doesn't mean in the middle of combat all the time. It's more like, no, no. Okay, okay, you guys are standing in front of the constabulary where you decided to go in and find out why they want to hire you. Now, Unless stop. anyone thinks that it's too um, ham-handed or arbitrary, read the beginning of some of the old classic modules, yeah. particularly tournament ones like the G-Series. You have to get them in real fast. Yes. You're in jail. <laughs> you are told to do this or the king will have you executed. Yeah. Now, that's arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the middle of robbing people on the... No, no, no. Can't. What? <laughs> but I'm like, lawful good. Did I tell you you're, a high, you're all highwaymen? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. Proactive salvage operators. There you go. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the email. Thanks for the email. All righty. Our next two emails come from Eric Saxon. Eric. But I'm a Norman. <laughs> um, Eric's first email says, Hey, Sod DMs. I just got finished hearing adventure number 10. I'm working oh. to number 58. <laughs> I heard adventure... Now you're working to 61. <laughs> yeah. I heard adventure number 8 in which you discussed blue dragons. I was a bit surprised that it didn't come up, that if blue dragons live in the desert, then a telltale sign of a blue dragon would be a lot of glass pools around their layers. Electricity plus sand equals glass. Although I've usually used blues as sages in cities, as well as hermits in the desert, I've considered blue dragons as recluses, but not necessarily antisocial. And since blues are often sages, that means they need access to adventurers and their stories in order to have sage knowledge. Uh So having them in population centers, polymorphed as humans, always made sense to me. Best regards, Eric. P.S. Catching up to the most recent ones as time goes on. (laughs) Maybe you'll get to the ones I'm in. Thanks for the email. Thank you, Um, Eric. Yeah. That's something I didn't think of. On the other hand, if the blue is trying to keep his appearance, you know, his lair private or even hidden, he would probably be smart enough to cover that up. Uh-huh. Or deliberately make glass pools all over the place. Somewhere else. So you couldn't tell exactly where. 
Yeah, it's like, yeah. well, he's somewhere in this desert, but this desert is huge. You know? <laughs> or set it up to a cave and and make that cave a big trap. He's got this giant shop where he does blown glass figures. <laughs> <laughs> that would be- or that, yeah. yeah. But um, sages, yeah, learning from adventurers or travelers is a way of learning things, but, you know, reading is another one as well. And reading is fundamental. Thank you. <laughs> Perhaps they would need access to adventurers to purchase, you know, tomes of magic and knowledge from them. True. True. Out. I could see, and like he pointed out, that would be a time for the blue if they didn't live in a city to at least occasionally travel there. Right. I love one of my favorite tropes to use in a game is where the characters have to go to this big bad ordinarily big bad thing bad guy big bad animal monster dragon for information and just information where you don't know if they're going to give you the information or they're going to eat you and even if they do give you the information they're going to want big payment yep or you have to do them a favor or something like that it's like what do we get if you do it well I'll let you live if you do (laughs) You get to walk out of here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but by the way, if you're looking to sink more gold from your PCs, hey. there's another way. Yeah. Dragon Sages. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the email. Thank that you. One. Thank you very much. Who was that again? Uh, that was Eric Saxon. Thanks, Eric. And our next email from Eric, he starts off with, hey, gang. I'm on Sodcast 15 now, and I'm listening to the discussion on bugbears. I think it would be interesting for you guys to read the Orcs of Thar gazetteer. That way you, yeah, (laughs) that way you would never expect bugbears or orcs to be easy pickings. Thar being a level 27 warrior orc who happens to be a Mm. devil swine werebore. (laughs) Well, that's got devil swine's vote from Star Gaming. In none of my Mistara campaigns are orcs or humanoids some sort of PC sport. You never know when you'll meet a level 10 orc warrior. Best regards, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Um, I guess if you're running Mistara, that works for you. I've never been a big advocate of giving monsters class levels. Uh-huh. I, I just don't like it. To me, that that invalidates human slash demi humanness. It's a lot that's more a, paperwork too. Well, and that's that's just a personal choice. I'm not bashing anyone who does do it. I just I don't like it myself. I just up the hit dice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, good. God knows, a lot of the modules and other supplements have full of things where X orc actually fights as a bugbear, or bugbear fights as a hill giant, you know, and that yeah. sort of toughens them up right there without having to go into the, you know, classness of it. True. True. I mean, if you want to, you know. I looked through, I looked through, or I thumbed through Orcs of Thar when I got it, and it's like, okay, I know where they're heading with this. I've dealt with enough players who play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay to see where they're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just, okay, I know. What do you think of humanoid classes, Liz? Um, it's interesting as something... I would possibly do it every once in a very great while as something really unusual to come across. 
but it would not be something that I'd have as the standard. Liz, sweetie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sweetie. Yes. We know, both of me and Mike know, that if you had the chance and your players let you, you'd be adding levels to them kobolds <laughs> right and left. I don't have to add levels to my kobolds. <laughs> they are tiny, they are sneaky, and they can make and create traps all over the place. They Would don't need want- to be level 25 spellcasters. <laughs> Wouldn't you want one level 25 kobold fighter who would like an 18 double strength that could lift a dragon? That would be humorous. <laughs> but, nah. You'd need a bigger strength than that to lift a dragon. And, yeah. and his name is Jor-El. No. Unless it's a very little <laughs> dragon. But, anyway. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for the email. That is certainly a, a way to keep your players guessing as far as humanoids, etc. Okay. Yeah, and that's why I'd, that's why I would do it very, very rarely, just to keep players on their toes. You know, ninety nine percent of the time, your orc is going to be just an orc. But every so often, you might have something that's like, what the crap? You know. Sometimes. I'd rather do something as I'd rather do something instead, like that orc is actually a polymorphed red dragon. Yeah. Which is Maybe why he's got a girdle of giant strength or something. Which is why, <laughs> why that kobold can lift it. <laughs> it's really a hill giant polymorphed, yeah. Yeah, well, or it's hey, I could, yeah, I can give a kobold a girdle of giant strength, and yep. then it is going to be the yep. kick buttest kobold <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and kick the buttiest kobold, yeah, that's yeah. it. Okay. Um, Okay, our next email is from Mothshade. Hi, Mothshade. Mothshade. And he wrote a very, you know, very long, very well thought out episode review of the Mazes and Perils episode that we did a couple of ones back. Vince, you listening? And, you know, because it was such a long and thought out email, we wanted to save it for the email show because we didn't think we would have time to really do it justice as part of an email segment on a regular show. So, here is Moth's review of our Mazes and Perils episode. He writes, Hello all. I considered not writing this email, but DM Mike in particular has been urging feedback and correspondence. With this in mind, I'd like to offer my views of Mazes and Perils, as well as the review slash interview itself. The following will be presented point by point. Um, before I get <laughs> the, the the opinions of Mosshade, <laughs> um, before I get into the main email, I want to ask you guys: Do you want me to stop at the end of each point so that we can address them as we go, rather than go through the entire email and then try to remember what was said? Uh, I think we can go through the email and then talk because you've got the email up there. If yeah. any of us have yeah. a, so the have first, a the first, part, yeah, the first few paragraphs are shut up, Glenn. Anyway. <laughs> Okay. Um, Number one, I was hoping Vince would be less confrontational during this segment, as the entire episode focused upon his work as a creator and not as a panel member or DM. As a gamer who may have an interest in Mazes and Perils, the attitude and comments of the creator come across as very off-putting. I don't need to hear about how he hates certain other rulebook contents. I don't need to hear about whiners and complainers particularly since they form the ranks of players that might have an interest in this book. 
I simply do not see the point of antagonizing those who may be listening. The disdain comes across loud and clear. Not much else does. This is my honest impression for what little it may be worth. Doubtless, Vince could probably care less. (laughs) As a side note, I honestly feel the reviewers could not be entirely forthcoming about their feedback. That is not a good thing to me. For the record, I agree very much with most of the feedback offered by Mike and Liz. Number two, editing. The book needs more, a lot more. I can forgive a typo here and there, but not so much on every page. Am I picky? Yes, I am. But this is a product review. There are plenty of simple typos, but there are also words used in error. This leads easily to confusion. Yes, I am an adult and longtime gamer. I can interpret. But I shouldn't have to, not to this extent. Ignoring the rather repetitive nature of the text in places and the awkward sentence structures, the text flip-flops between tense and focus, often within a single sentence. This makes it difficult for me to read smoothly. Yes, me, a random gamer that owns and uses a lot of rule books. Number three, content. I do appreciate the structure and order of the content. It is definitely easier to reference and follow than its inspiration. That one quality in itself is not enough for me to develop an interest in yet another book. On the opposite side of the coin, I would appreciate less of the writer's personal preferences in the presentation. I don't need to be told things are very simple. I don't need to be told what I as a player should or should not worry about. Present the information in a manageable way. Inject a little humor or some fun references. But do not presume to tell me, quote, time should not be wasted, end quote. And then proceed to present searching for secret doors and picking locks as examples. Were they not examples of wasting time? Sorry, it came across that way due to the presentation. I know the DM slash writer runs the game a certain way. Everyone does, and they should, but I am not playing the Vince game. I would have liked to see some description of thief skills. Straightforward and simple? Perhaps, but they deserve a bit of explanation. And for myself, I always lament the lack of description for weapons, armor, or equipment. Perhaps this stems from the inclusion of every polearm in history within the ADD <laughs> handbook. <laughs> a Vulge? Why, that looks like... Um, but I digress. <laughs> My cleric is using a lucerne hammer. <laughs> yeah, I was guilty of that, too. Yeah, me too. Well, it's a hammer, right? They can use hammers. <laughs> well, whatever lucerne does with it, that's his business, you know? Yeah. Anyway, uh, continuing on. In a game like this, wording can be a bane or a boon. By way of example, I will simply note that by holding a lead miniature, I can prevent the use of ESP in my area. A 240-foot ball of fire is a terrifying thing indeed, and of all the possible monetary treasure I might find, only gold coins are worth experience. Hey, I like that. While I understand the author is not exactly hung up on precise description and prefers the players to rely strongly upon their own imaginations, this does not always convey well when presenting rules. Polymorph Other tells me that the new form conveys the movement abilities of that shape. 
Do I have the same attack forms like claws or fangs? The same natural defenses such as scales or a shell? I find it hard to believe that I couldn't bite or tail slap if I became a crocodile. There are some nice gems to be found in the book. The ritual of raised dead appealed to me more than a little. So did the bit on the hopeless character. I'd be interested to know how such characters made out in the game from a practical viewpoint. The selection of monsters is nice, including those culled for much later editions. I do wonder why kobolds were made plural, just as a point of interest. Still, throughout most of the book, the pieces of flavor text made for some nice surprises. I may now induce were rats to change involuntarily at the smell of cheese. (laughs) The varieties of Medusa and Gorgon were particularly intriguing. The section on magic items was satisfactory, but only just. A new item or two would not have gone unappreciated. Number four, layout. Not all of the tables and charts work for me, and some are difficult to read. Missile weapon ranges is one example of a chart that could have been spaced better, and where weapons are listed that I cannot find in Ye Old General Store. The optional rule boxes vex me in particular. The text does not always fit without being cut off, and at least two different fonts are being used. Otherwise, the fonts are clear and easy to read. The illustrations actually illustrate a point or feature of the space where they are located. I appreciate that. How did I do that? Accident, I'm sure. Number five, conclusion. Overall, the book is a decent clone of the Holmes rules, and I find no real fault with the intent of the project. It gives me just about everything I feel I need to participate in the game, but just barely, as long as I am willing to put some serious work into the effort. I feel Mazes and Perils could benefit from the following. Line-by-line editing. There are a lot of typos and simple errors that could be cleaned up to make the presentation far better, and it is a shame that such an extensive effort has to be marred by their inclusion. A more neutral tone of presentation. I'd like to see the writer's personal feelings as a less pervasive presence in the text, except, of course, where flavor text is concerned. A few more new or unique concepts, as I feel this is where the book really shines. I know this is a retro clone, but it also benefits from quite a few non-retro ideas. Consistency, particularly in font and chart structure, also with an eye towards spacing. If I have offended, it was not my intent. I am critical only because I feel the subject material stands up to hard scrutiny. Best wishes, DM Mothshade, David A. Hill. Thank you, David. Yeah, I know. I think that was, and, you know, very well presented. Yeah, now we can. Sp- I can speak freely because I got out of there relatively unscathed. So <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for something like, "What the hell's up with the artwork?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Glenn, you ignorant twerp. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway. Vince, confrontational, please. Yes, to anyone who's familiar with either his time on Save or Die or RFI will know that Vince, Vince says is what not he, a, he is not a shrinking violet. Nope. <laughs> uh, okay. as, no, go ahead. I'm trying not to go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, 
As far as some of the points he brought up, um, I can't really say anything about layout or spacing or any of that. That's more your U2's area. Right. Um, none of the typos or sentence structures screamed at me. But, you know, I grade freshman papers. <laughs> you just thought this was another one, right? I may have become a nerd. Uh, <laughs> Mike has a very low threshold now for. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't even grade grammar and punctuation. I just like, can I understand what they're saying is really the only thing I do. And Liz has seizures whenever she walks by my computer. <laughs> I can't believe you're going to let that go. Like, I'm not teaching English, love. I'm teaching history. You mean, you mean you'll take a paper written in leet speak? If I can understand it, okay. if I can't understand it, then no. Okay. Um, as for explanations, well, if you remember my, I, that was kind of a problem I had too, but it, you know, he, Vince mentioned he was writing this for current gamers. He's not writing it for new people. He's writing it for D&D players. So all I can think of is he just assumes you'll already know it. Yeah. Um, I, personally think that might not be the best choice in the world because I think, you know, we should always hope that new players are going to be, but, you know, it's a way of doing a game. True. I do think I did not catch that there were weapons that were in the missile ranges that weren't in the Yield General Store. That, That probably is just a typo that needs fixing. Right. I'll let Liz talk about the layout. Um, well, as Mothshade says, you know, he also likes the structure and order, which was something that we all had thought was a very strong point of the book, especially compared to the original Holmes booklet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, doing layout myself, um, I tend to use Adobe InDesign and, you know, once you, have a table style set up, you know, that same style ports over to all of the tables that you do within your document. Um, I believe that Vince said that he was using Microsoft Word and inserting tables through Word, and that probably has something to do with why the tables sometimes do not, you know, look completely the same. Um, You can do a lot in Word with tables and including clip art, but you know, it's it's a big difference between using Microsoft Word and making tables and using Adobe InDesign. And I don't mean to sound like a design snob, but I probably do anyway and I apologize. But <laughs> um, I question for both of you. Did either one of you notice the the change in fonts? I did not, but I wasn't, I wasn't looking for it. Um, I saw mostly it looked like the Holmes font. Um, there may have been like a table or a, a title or so that was kind of funky, but I usually chalk that up to the PDF because there's a lot, like I've got a, I've got a PDF printed out of the rule cyclopedia here and there's once in a while it goes and puts a different font in where you expect it to be the way it, you know, was in the book. So I chalk it up to like, okay, he didn't embed that font very well or something like that. Okay. And Liz, I know we're layout people, mm-hmm. and it still 
shocks me to this day that people use Word for layout. Yeah, I mean, if that's all you have, you know, you have to work with what you have. I understand that, but I mean, you go to OpenOffice, LibreOffice, but what I'm saying is, if if you have a choice, use a layout program. Quark, InDesign, something like that. I mean, Word can do a lot, but it's still no substitute for a layout program as far as I'm concerned. I said, okay, off soapbox, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In in summary, I would think that, you know, Vince made Mazes and Perils for a very, for people who are already Holmes fans. Yeah. And more importantly, I think he also made it for Holmes fans who really want a true introduction to AD&D rather yeah. than my opinion, which was Holmes was really – I don't care what it said in there. It was really original D&D. Yeah, yeah. Holmes Brown. Like I said, Holmes Brown book is the way I roll. Original, but original if you do D&D. the Holmes book, he says go to advanced. So if you're taking Holmes at his word in the game, you know, I can see – why Vince went with the AD&D progression rather than the other way. So, Mm. (laughs) um, I think that on the whole, uh, DM Mothshade gives a lot of good ideas, you know, very well thought out review. Um, Considering that Mazes and Perils is a free download and Vince is not asking for money for it, unless that has changed since the last time. Not that I know of. Yeah, no, um, it's still free. Yeah, it's still a free download. Um, he did I, it because he knew that I torrented it anyway. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I'm sure that you know, as time goes on, you know, there will be, you know, revisions with errata. You know, just like the AD&D books and stuff. Um, hopefully, he'll be able to use the things that you brought up as ideas for a version 2.0, 3.0. You know, make it even bigger and better than before. Yeah. I mean, all in all, fair cop. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a second revision as it is. Yeah. But thank you for the so, letter, Moshe. Yeah, thank you. What else is in there? All right, and the last bit of our show, we have quite a few emails from Vic Shade. Vic Shade Arama. Yes. If nothing um, else, I like the guy's name. Yeah. That's a pretty good I, name. Yeah, I want to do a murder mistress in Vic Shade, Private Eye. Vic Shade. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vic is a fairly new fan of ours, and he has been sending us emails with commentary for virtually every episode um, since 10 up to 10 we do not have an email for episode 3 and I don't know if it's because he simply did not give us one or if it was one that got lost through the cracks and we know that was the Tim Kask interview ah yeah okay so anyway because we have so many I will say that we trimmed them a bit in the interests of saving time, but we attempted to keep the gist of what Vic had to say in all of them so that we wouldn't have a five-hour email episode. <laughs> so we cut them down so we could just go yes, no, or maybe? Well, not that, not that bad. bad. No. Not that See, bad. I, I'm no. sitting here with my magic eight ball. I'm waiting. 
<laughs> Reply hazy, ask later. later. So, here's our first one from Vic Shade, covering you, episode one. Do you want to do to the end of each episode, and then we'll give some quick commentary, and then run to the next one? I think that's probably the best way to go. Yes, Glenn? no, blue, torches. Well, yeah, he's going to use his eight balls, so that'll be okay. quick. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll go, go, go. Okay, so, episode one. Vic writes, hey guys, great show. I listen to a lot of RPG podcasts, and over the past year, I have turned away from most of my other RPG systems in favor of going back to classic Redbox D&D. Oh. Maybe I had heard episodes of your show over the past few years, but it really came to my attention recently with the shift in my gaming palette. I love the site. I love the pig-faced orc. I always pictured them as Gamorrean guards from Return of the Jedi myself. Oh, yeah. Probably because of the cover of King's Festival, Module B11. Mm-hmm. So I have started to listen to your show from the beginning, having added the whole collection to my Zypod playlist. I started D&D on the Red Box Basic set, adding to it with the AD&D Fiend Folio, the expert set rules, and then whatever modules I could find from D&D or AD&D or Dungeon Magazines. Greater catalog. (laughs) Edition never mattered to us. I think we even added some Star Frontiers gear from a Dragon Magazine article. (laughs) Oh, I can can salute. Anyway, I'll I'll talk about that. He salutes you. (laughs) As for the Thule, I never used them until I got King's Festival which I have run about 30-plus times. I found your discussion of them as bodyguards very interesting as I thought of this. I think, however, in light of your podcast discussion, I will stick to using Thules as magical creations of hobgoblin shamans. Cool. Sounds nice. Yeah, but talking about the whole Star Frontiers thing, um, granted, this was back in my teen years. We were in middle school and early high school, But, yeah, it was standard. Our players would want to go – my players would want to go into Gamma World, (laughs) load up on gear, and then go back to Greyhawk and, like, hunt down Cthulhu and stuff and try to have (laughs) – I'm going to – I'm riding a death machine. (laughs) I want a lightsaber. (laughs) I stay in Gamma World. You mean a fabulous sun sword to fight the forces of evil. (laughs) Lords of Light. Light. (laughs) And Princess Ariel is still Howitt. Okay, thank you. (laughs) She doesn't do a thing for me, but I I salute your... Sure. Yes. Anyway. Glenn? What? Your eight ball. Um, Go change your shorts. No, um... (laughs) That was never on my eight ball. Yeah. I forgot what the question was. Oh, yeah, King's Festival. Yeah, Thuls are really neat. I kind of like them, and I do like King's Festival. That was, what, B11? 11. 11, yeah. And uh, that, that's to me, I, say, I think a B11 and 12 is one, you know, like two halves of one, because they sort of work into each other. Oh, okay. Yeah, especially you got the, you know, the, the queen with the indigestion on the front of B12 and, you know. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I, I really like that, that module. It's a lot of fun. And Thules are real handy. And yeah, magical constructs. That's good. That's good. I like okay. it. Cool. Alrighty. Um, episode two, Vic writes, 
Here are my thoughts on episode two of your most excellent podcast. Excellent. No more Smurfs, please. (laughs) But as for Kobolds, the Redbox Basics set started you off as a DM with a group adventure in the ruins of Castle Mistamir. This started me out with the little buggers as my primary low-level baddies. Was that Mold Bay or Menser? Uh, well, I know Moldvay had the haunted yeah. keep, but I don't remember the actual name of it. It might be Moldvay. Yeah, it's, I think it's Menser. Okay. Um, says, I never saw kobolds as reptilian until 3rd edition came out, and I think they stress the dragon heritage a bit too much. I agree that they were just scaly, rust-colored dogmen, and their language was always described as, quote, the yelping sound of small dogs, end quote. <sighs> Settle down. <laughs> Some of my favorite scenarios for kobolds are B-11, the kobold slave, AD&D Book of Layers. Players laugh when you reveal that the main opponent facing their fifth-level party will be kobolds. The laughter quickly fades as they are unexpectedly netted and have their primary weapons and gear stolen by the little monsters that refuse to stay and fight. <laughs> That's a good series of book allergies. Another way of getting rid of excess magic. Yes. Yes. <laughs> have your players be attacked and robbed by kobolds. <laughs> That's right. They'll never live it down. <laughs> and, and then give them wedgies. <laughs> Um, Dungeon 51, Bandits of Bunglewood, fighter-trained kobolds, and added the shrunken dungeon twist. You guys mentioned this in the podcast, but I only ever saw mechanics for it one other time in the boxed game, The Goblin's Lair. Hmm, not familiar with that. Yeah. I think that's one of the uh, black box when it came out, like new the easy calendar to, stuff. Yeah, you do easy to master Dungeons and Dragons. One, of, they had like three other box sets you can buy as like mega everything in here, including the munchies, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, you can do a lot with kobolds. Um, you know, talking to me about kobolds, you're preaching to the choir, but. <laughs> The puppy choir. I'm I'm of the opinion that now uh, that kobolds have gotten a raise in their status in the game, pretty much. I would really like to go back to Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and import the snotlings to be <laughs> uh, to be under the kobolds. Yeah. That's the real little bugger pest, roach type, goblinoid in the well, land. You work on that and let it gel. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> um, episode four. Vic Shade writes, I must say I'm a fan of D20, but due to the infectious problem of players thinking the answer for every situation is somewhere on their character sheet, I have gone back to running classic D&D. Good for you. I figure if there is less on their sheet to ponder over, they might be more likely to take in their surroundings and look for solutions in their environment. Well said. Yes, I think I think the when your players start saying, "What if I?" rather than it says on my sheet, then you know you're doing something right. 
And while D20 is a big center of that, I wouldn't say it's the only system. But right. anyway. Right. Um, as, as far as classic D&D combat, I use the phases of a round from the Mincer Red Box set and Rules Cyclopedia. And although I try to remember to ask what players are doing in a round, I typically only do it on the first round of a combat. Then things just kind of fall into place after that as the group faces off against different opponents. And I do like morale rules. When something critical happens, like leader death or fireball massacre, and free attacks at plus two if your opponent breaks into a flat-out run. When I use NPC groups, I pre-stat one whole group on index cards. I use name, class level, AC, attack, and personality trait and goals. I keep a half dozen ready at any time and make new groups to replace the ones I have used or leveling up old groups for a surprise return. Alignments and goals vary, and those goals might not work with the player's goals. And I have had evil groups aid the PCs as well as lawful groups come into contact, into conflict with the PCs because they will brook no interference in their goals. Um, yeah, definitely the simpler your game rules get, the more likely your players are going to be to think outside of the box instead Mm of, you know, being trapped in what do the rules say my character can do. And you start to see a little bit of that creep beginning with second edition Mm AD&D with the the non-weapon proficiencies. And Mike has talked about this quite a lot over the episodes as we've gone on. She's making. (laughs) It's like, well, I want to hunt. Do you have hunting as a skill? I no, but I'm I'm a fighter, and I have a longbow. If I see an animal, I can shoot it. Yes, but you don't have hunting, so you're going to have a negative 30% modifier or something. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know? it's really silly stuff like, can you hunt? Well, I have tracking. Yes, but can you hunt? Well, can I not track the animal until I find it and then shoot it? No, because you do not have hunting. Exactly, what? which is why... Which was like, we at Thaco's Hammer, Brian and I, we hammer the optional thing into the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's everything is optional. Okay? And common sense should prevail. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I, I can see that. I, I do like the morale rules, too, even if I have to tell my DM to use them. Do they have to check for morale? He always seems to run monsters that never check for morale. I don't, yeah, I don't always use it, but I do think it's nice there in case you're in a situation where you as the DM yourself aren't entirely sure what they'll do. It's great to just roll a couple of D6 or a D12. Yeah. And, you know, if you're trying to intimidate a group of orcs or goblins or whatever, you know, you can use, you know, your party leader or as a group, you know, use your charisma to try to intimidate them. It's like, ah, I look dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Use it as a modifier on their morale. Yeah. And Maybe it's a great shorthand. <laughs> it's a great shorthand on how, you know, resilient they are and belligerent. Right. So, yeah, no, it's a good idea. That, okay, go on, Mr. Shade. <laughs> Episode 5. He writes, on Episode 5, you spoke of lethal games. 
I have found that once the players know that their game world isn't scaled to them, they will stop attacking everything they see and getting themselves trounced. You're an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) If the game world keeps growing with the characters, then they never feel really stronger or accomplished. True. I sometimes allow an encounter that I know is out of scale to occur, and either the group will slaughter their enemies, which makes them realize, hey, we used to have trouble with orcs, but we're stronger now, and they really aren't a threat to us, or vice versa. I try to hint by having them witness smashed trees or vast piles of corpses, even ancient <laughs> scrawling of warning, a great evil lies within. Or this ten-foot-tall mound of dung. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's, that's a, good, a good one, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's helmets in it. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. sword. Do you want that sword? No, it's glowing. I don't care. I don't care. Module B12, Queen's Harvest, clarifies the green slime on page 10. Um, um, He reprints the stats, which we have truncated for the purpose of the email. It says, note that due to a printing error, this monster is incorrectly detailed in the Dungeon Master's rulebook. (laughs) And how can you say you don't like the rules cyclopedia? There's nothing new in there. It's just the boxed sets collected and bound into a hardcover. Tell me that you have changed your views on this most wonderful one-book complete version of the best RPG ever made. No. Vic, stop sucking up to me. (laughs) I I suspect this was probably aimed more at Vince. Well, this is before I got on the show, too. Yeah, well, yes. Vince was notorious for being a rules cyclopedia hater. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> I personally could care less about the rules cyclopedia one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. I don't hate it. I just never could understand that, you know, we talked about Menser, but we didn't talk about the rules cyclopedia. And people, the, the RC guys got upset and saying, well, it's the same info. And I'm, I always was kind of, well, if it's the same info, then we're talking about it already with Mincers. So I think they were mostly talking about cares. Vince's attitude and the way he wanted to do it on the show. Oh, well, as uh, we said earlier, we have no control over Vince's attitude. Except for not having him on the show. No, I, did I say that? I'm sorry. Yeah, you should. <laughs> but no, I've, I've always liked the idea of non-scaled encounters because I think that's a lost art to a lot of gamers, particularly D&D players of current editions. You know, I'd love to open the monster section, just close my eyes and point my finger. Yeah. And, you know, okay, learn the skill of when to run away. That is a skill, too, in these games. Uh Yes, you have to learn when to hold them, learn when to fold them. Get out of my head. Yes, yes, yes. Just thinking that. Know when to walk away, know when to run. Know when to run. That's. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Go on, Mr. Chain. Lighten us. Anyway, okay. Going on to his thoughts on episode six, Vic Shade writes. Enlighten us. Really? (laughs) Really? Anyway. Episode six, Vic Shade writes. I have found that the magic user in the party always ends up getting all the gear that no one else could afford. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. <laughs> Part of the reason that low-level adventurers tend to put up with a one-shot, let's sleep now party member is because they often bankroll the expedition. That is, until they get powerful enough to start creating new spells and magic items, then they're always broke. <laughs> <laughs> By the way... Jim, Another good way of getting rid of rid of those. Yes. yes. By the way, Jim in the scroll tube was a common trick in the half dozen groups that I gamed with over the years. Yay! At last, other people. Yeah. I knew that was pretty common in the groups I was in, but ever since we moved up here, it's like I've almost never found anyone who's done the rock in the scroll case with a continual light on it. Uh, anyway, he goes on to say, People shouldn't be looking for plot holes in your dungeon. That is just ridiculous. The orcs are here because they're setting up closer to town. The elves are here to kill the orcs and have just finished resting up in the room they're encountered in. As long as any reason they are here can be thought up, let it fly. And the players say that it isn't realistic enough? Tell them their magic items don't work anymore for the same reason. <laughs> Thundar was the best ever. You guys rock. Keep at it. Yeah. Why oh why she followed the fly? Perhaps she'll die. Just shut up about it. She's in the dungeon. <laughs> I, I see his point. Um, my only debate would be is that works really well if you're an experienced DM or you have a lot of imagination. Newer DMs, if their players are going, you know, well, why? how does this not make sense? I could see them being kind of caught flat-footed. Well, I would say, you know, and this is something that you have taught me watching you DM if, if the players question something and you do not have an immediate answer for them, then just nod and say, yes, yes that is, that is strange, strange, isn't it? it? And just keep going That's and let them wonder. With a you smug know? smile. Got to have the smug smile. Yes, That's and right. you can come up with a reason later on down the road. You don't have to explain yourself to them immediately. <laughs> Give thought, them something to think about. <laughs> I, I thought he said taco. Yeah. <clears throat> and best of all, when they're trying to figure it out, they may come up with an idea that you hadn't thought of and go, yeah, or, I'm going to use that. And you use it, and yeah. they're happy because they think they thought of it, and you're happy because you figured something out. And nine times out of ten, it's, that's better than what I thought. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah so. like, I don't even want to think of how many times I have personally thought I figured out something in one of Mike's adventures, and he probably just took it from me pondering the options in game. No, you don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Episode 7. If you are going to take out a party member without letting him know that he has even been taken out, you just have him either in you just have him enter the fight on round 3 or 4 and say he awoke beaten and left for dead and track the party here, arriving just after his doppelganger attacked. Easy fix, and the player finding out he wasn't unfairly killed off after all. Mm-hmm. Now, to remind everybody, that's when we were talking about the problems of role-playing doppelgangers, yeah, when they ambush a character. Without alerting the entire group of players that something is going on. 
by calling the guy away to talk with him, and everyone's going, what's going on? Or worse, Bob comes back and acts normal, but now the DM is running Bob rather than Joe, whose character it is. You you have a lot of notes passing back and forth that everybody's supposed to think. It's like, oh, yeah, nothing's happening here. Nothing to see. Um, Anyway, he goes on to say, Your interview with Gene Wells caught me off guard, but I'm glad I listened to it. I know Silver Princess well, and it was her version that I first ran. I know you guys don't do any D20 stuff, but that adventure was a turning point in the game, and my group isn't likely to have forgotten, even though it was over six years ago that I ran it. Yeah, sorry, I didn't edit that right. He was talking about running Palace of the... Silver, Silver Princess. Princess in, I guess, 3 or Pathfinder or something. Um, he says, I have used spell point systems before. I agree that forethought and planning are better, and I realize, thanks to AEG's book, Magic, mm-hmm. that spell point systems suffer from imbalance as you get higher level, because a fireball that does 5 dice damage needs to cost less than a fireball that does 10 dice a friend called me tonight, ranting about the guys at his local game store. He tried to start a game of Red Box Basic, and they said it was a kid's game. One guy said that it was a game to teach children who couldn't learn the AD&D rules. Fact is, that just isn't the right crowd for the game he wants to play. I directed him to Samwise 7 RPGs videos and your podcast. We like knowing that there is a strong retro movement out there for all the guys who are fed up with crunchy mechanics and just want to have fun again. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I'm thank glad. You. Hopefully he's listening to us now. Yeah, but yeah, I think we've all run into that attitude before with yeah. basic being easier and for kids. The only thing I can say about it is it's been pretty consistent from the very beginning. That was the attitude. I remember in, in seventh grade trying to convince my friends to let's dump AD&D and go back and do a basic campaign. They all looked at me like, you know, I'd grown a third head or something. I can understand how that's still an attitude. You can or can't? I cannot. Yeah. I mean, it's been effectively out of print for, what, 13, 14 years now? No, I mean, the, the people who know, the, the, the people who know about it. Yeah, but it sounds like he but went to a game store to just yeah. run a game, and yeah. they were yeah, going exactly, through. exactly. Yeah, that's that is kind of odd. I'll assume that they were quote unquote older gamers, if not you know as as Grognardi is Groggy as could be. Yeah. Well, I think at least part of it has to do with just the very fact that it is called basic, and. That immediately puts a person into a certain mindset that this is somehow lesser because it's just basic. It's not the full game. This is just basic. Which is odd because back in the 70s, most of the war game community, you bought a war game, virtually every one of them had the basic rules and the advanced Mm-hmm. And you just played which version you liked. You want to hear something funny? You know, this is what I, this is, I find it interesting that players, you say basic, you get that kind of attitude. But if you call it original D&D, 
a lot of them will go, ooh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, well, all of a sudden, it's a mystical, neat thing that we want to try. It, it's all about what you call it. Yeah. And so I think that is another reason why some of the retro clones will do better because they don't have the stigma. possibly, you know, the stigma or the derogatory term of basic stuck in there. It's not basic D&D. It's Labyrinth Lord. It's Swords and Wizardry. Right. Um, yeah. I can't recall if it was OSR Gaming or Dragon's Foot, but I remember reading somebody's post who were complaining that they went to a big convention and tried to run Basic Expert and nobody wanted to play it. And then the next year, he signed up to run Labyrinth Lord, and then he had plenty of players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the almost the exact same game, but well, it's you know, it's marketing, branding. Yeah, it's branding, and you know, is, what is wrong with society today? Dang it, no. <laughs> Why well, yeah. back in our day, they didn't brand. Oh. <laughs> but if you think about it, original D anD D, is even older than basic. But oh yeah. It's all of a sudden, it's the holy grail, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, doing graphic design and all of the courses that I've taken recently, um, it is, you know, it's so much more than just doing layouts and, you know, putting together a, you know, pleasing images for people. Right. It's very, very, you know, tightly meshed with advertising and marketing. Because yeah. you're you're visually selling a product, right? And so I've I think I've gotten a a much better understanding understanding yeah of you know how you can use certain words or even just certain typefaces to make someone feel differently about something. You know, you can take the exact same word and put it in five different typefaces, and depending on the look of the typeface, that word can have a different connotation in your brain. Um, you know, just because of, you know, you're creating a feel of context. So, yeah, yeah I think, I think yeah. it's all about the naming. And that's what's giving that's what's giving basic a bad rap in some circles because people are looking at the word basic and they are automatically assuming that it is somehow inferior. Uh-huh. Although, yeah, talking about the beginning when he was talking about what to do about doppelgangers, the only problem with that is is what you're basically doing is taking away the doppelganger's main way of attack, right? Which is to get a character to side, kill them. And take their place. You're basically saying, well, he's not going to kill them. He's going to beat them up. And I just, I don't buy that. That, to me, you might as well not be using a doppelganger at that point. What if he's a really incompetent doppelganger? (laughs) Okay, that's one. Every doppelganger you run into is incompetent? Well, maybe they went to the, you know, the Empire's, you know, marksmanship school. Then why bother using a doppelganger at that point? For the last... You can use plenty of monsters for labs. I mean, to me, it just, it, it, it to me personally, it invalidates the monster, I'm afraid. Okay. All right. All right. You got me. 
You know, I'm yeah, you do stuff for laughs, Gwen. You? No. You know, I, I'm worried. I'm worried he's going to send us more emails up until this show, and then he's going to review this show, and we're going to be talking about this again. Reviewing <laughs> yeah. the review of the we're, review. We're going we're to be in like an endless loop with this. Well, that's why I'm saying it's a matter of perception. I mean, obviously, it worked with him and his group, and that's cool. Uh, personally, I. I think that rather cheapens the monster, but that's just me. Okay. Go on, Liz. All righty. We are moving on to Vic Shade's thoughts on Episode 8. Um, he says, I also love blue dragons. Nuff said. When you were talking about stripping its scales for armor, you mentioned, and it has AC0. I was wondering... Do you guys allow the armor made from dragon scales to grant the same AC of the dragon it came from? Hell yes. We use the AC of the armor type, plate mail, AC3. Um, Then he goes on and talks about skills and powers in AD&D and how they called it 2.5. We truncated that. Yeah, we truncated that for time versions, but basically that was part of the email. And then he goes on to say, the worst thing about the company at the time was the Mistara audio adventures that were coming out as introductory products. Those were a riot. Mistara hasn't lived down the damage done by those products to this day. (laughs) Okay, well... As far as my you campaign... Have, you haven't seen Dragon Strike and the DVD that take me with <laughs> ah, I love Dragon Strike. If you fail... Yes! <laughs> if, you, if you do not watch where you walk... Yes! <laughs> like, oh, it was great. But um, as yes. far as the dragon armor, no, I, I treat it like whatever armor it's becoming. In fact, usually a type of leather, but... Yeah, I can see scale mail or plate out of it, but the main advantage is you get the immunity. You know, if it's, you know, red dragon armor, your armor gives you super protection against fire, blue lightning, so on and so forth. That's how I play it. Uh It, They don't get the AC of the dragon, no. Hey, do you think it would have helped the first Dungeons & Dragons movie if they played that Dragon Strike video before before the movie? Well, it made it more entertaining, certainly. And now a short subject. <laughs> oh, I don't think it's on the net anymore, but somebody somebody ran that or, or did the put it on YouTube and did a, a Misty <laughs> riff of it. Oh, it was great. Man. And by the way, that video at the end has doesn't it have a cameo by Jim Ward? I believe it does. Yeah, in the court scene. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Episode nine. Oh, one more thing. Oh, yes. I, 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 yeah, for the, the AD&D 2.5. Yeah, I, skills and powers. Skills and powers. I laugh at that because if you remember, Liz, when Chris Walker was first telling us about it, that's exactly what he called it. 2.5, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not 3, really. It's more of a 2.5. <laughs> I'm glad to hear somebody else thought it, too. Okay, episode 9. I know exactly what you mean about the, quote, retro feel, end quote. When I picked up Labyrinth Lord at my FLGS, I was hit with such nostalgia that I just stood there holding it for a few minutes. I'm sure I was grinning like a fool. I was going to publish a few years back, but the guy doing layouts for me wasn't on the same page at the time. 
he was going with now and trendy. No and, I, and I couldn't seem to convince him that nostalgia is what will draw in the crowd. I'll be getting back on track with the publishing plans in the next few months. Cool. It took us all a little time to get over losing one of our core gamers and closest friends in Afghanistan. But it's time to move forward on the projects that meant so much to him and all of us. I don't like level loss. I've adapted the third ed rule that a negative level equals a minus one to all rolls until removed. I have, however, set an XP reward that is lessened for failure. For example, save the children from the ogres, and you get 1,200 XP, minus 100 for each kid that you fail to save and bring home alive. Whoa. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear about that Yeah. gamer. I know one of the friends I used to game with many years ago passed away, and that's yeah. not not fun to have to deal with um, but yeah as far as the Glenn <laughs> as the you've rendered my speechless yeah I, I am speechless but is it my deodorant or what <laughs> ah it's that darn eight ball of yours oh okay what was the question <laughs> oh yeah uh, level loss no don't like it yuck poo uh, was that convincing? Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I'm not too crazy about it, but I've learned to live with it. Um, when you have I a use... DM, Go ahead. When you have a DM that, that offers you a way to, like, recoup it at very expensive level, but at least he gives you a chance. Yeah, I use level loss, but I say that you will eventually recover from it, uh-huh. but it takes weeks per level. Unless you get a restoration spell. Mm. Uh, I don't like the, you know, because you happen to run into a wraith, you are now losing levels permanent forever. Exactly. Um, My my only comment as far as the save the children from the ogre, um, he was saying that, what was it, a 1,400? 1,200. 1,200 XP award minus 100 for each child not rescued. Right. Well, unless there's a lot of children... You know, you're still getting a benefit, which to me is kind of, but you didn't succeed. Still, you, I guess you killed the ogre, theoretically, or uh, defeated them, so I guess well, that it would, it would be a partial success. You know, you managed to save some of the children, and so you should get some kind of reward for doing what you did, and but a, you wouldn't get the full reward. Right. Unless there are 12 children. Well, there might be. What if it's a village or something? Mm-hmm. I know quite a few DMs who do something like that. I mean, look at Bad Mike when we were playing Keep. We didn't stop the, what was it, the Necromancer? Uh-huh. We put a serious hurt on him by stealing all his stuff. So he did give us a reduced experience award. Yeah, and we took out one of his main lieutenants. Right. Which was, you know, pretty oomphy. Yeah. Right. You defeated him if you defeated the plan, I guess. Yeah. Exactly him personally. Right. Yeah, so yeah, I, I believe in like a reduced experience for that kind of thing. You give them some, mm. some people, like, what was it, uh, either Corey or Fulon over at Thinkless Hammer said, they give experience for failure because you're learning something. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting idea. I would, 
I'd make it a very small percentage of what you would have gotten if you'd succeeded. Oh, yeah, but just enough to encourage you to go on and do better and things like that. Yeah, you know, say if if you'd succeeded, you would have gotten 1,200 XP, but you failed, and I'm going to say that you learned something from your failure, so you only get 200 XP. You know, right. you get a little something, but it's not going to be anywhere near what you would have gotten otherwise. Right. Yeah. Um, as far as um, now and trendy versus nostalgia, I think there's a good, I think there's a good argument for both, and it's going to depend on you know who is your audience going to be. Do you just want old gamers to buy your product, or do you want to try to attract some new blood as well? You might need to do a a mesh, you know, maybe have it. 80% nostalgia feel and just a little bit of a tweak of now and trendy here and there to, you know, maybe grab the attention of a new player. Sort of like how Goodman Games' Dungeon Crawl Classics. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, have nostalgia be the main thrust of, you know, your format, but, you know, have a little bit of something modern to draw in new people. Yeah, layout presentation, something like that. Yeah, but again, it all depends on, you know, who's your audience. Because if you're not interested in the new players, you know, by all means, go 100% nostalgia. Because if you're just trying to get, you know, the old grogs like us, yeah, <laughs> you got us. Yeah. <laughs> and to tell you the truth, as an old grog, and this uh, this is my, my two cents about this, is if you print everything black and white, you're not going to get any complaint with to me, except for like the cover and stuff, you know. Um, I like all black and white, but if you're going to do the full color layout for a blown apart stuff, for God's sake, give us a black and white character sheet. Yeah. For God's sake, that stuff's expensive. I don't want to use up my ink or go to Kinko's. I just want something that'll keep track of my character. You can make it look really nice in black and white. You don't have to go the whole full color. Anyway, that's my. Reminds me of somebody at one point was offering a classic character record sheet that actually printed out like it was on notebook paper. (laughs) I like that. Which I thought was cool. I just saw that because I picked up uh, Savage Worlds Deluxe. I look in the back of the character sheet. I'm going, I'm not going to get that printed. (laughs) I don't know how much that costs. (laughs) Printed at work. Black and white. You know how muddy and unreadable those things can get? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look around. I'm sure there's some black and white. I I found a black and white one, but... I'm just, yeah, go to Mad Irishman. He's probably got it. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got everything else. Yeah. Anyway. That was number nine, and that's the show I finally got there along with Crispy. Yeah. yeah, and in our last letter from Vic Shade, episode 10, you get mentioned, Glenn. No, so, yeah, no, you are really? you're, you are finally part of the group. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the episode 10 letter, Vic Shade mentions the rule cyclopedia for conversion possibilities from 2E to classic D&D. Then he goes on to say, Lastly, DM Glenn has a great voice for radio. Hearing him talk makes me want to kick my feet and pull out the whiskey, like an old friend is stopping by. Maybe he sounds like someone from my youth or something. I don't know, but I hope he becomes a permanent fixture. Here's my list. One. Yeah, by the way, this was the when we were asking about top 15 games. 
chance. I got some rum if he wants to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down to Oklahoma City. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so Vic Shade's list of 15 is D&D, classic AD&D first or 3.5, GURPS, Yay. Rift slash Palladium. Yow. Call of Cthulhu. All right. Woo-hoo. Star Wars collectible card game. Ugh. Magic the Gathering. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Battleship. Risk. Ooh. Axis and Allies. Mm. Axis and Allies was pretty good. Warhammer 40K. Pathfinder. As long as you don't have to buy all your miniatures every three years. <laughs> Marvel Superheroes, CSR, yes. D20 Modern, Star Frontiers, and Gamma World. Nice. Mm. About me, I am hung up on out-of-print material. I play games with my family and kids. I like lots of heavy mechanics. Even though I don't at all, I swear I don't. (laughs) The Gods of Mystara, classic D&D's known world didn't start being mentioned until the Immortals rules set and were detailed in full with the Gazetteer line and the Wrath of the Immortals supplement. I will have to check out Tejel Manor. I never heard of it before, and I love Mega Dungeons. I like to have them available for the players to hit up in between more pressing matters. You can't always have some big evil bad guy trying to take over the kingdom. Sometimes it's just back to the local ruins. By the way... You have never seen Firefly? <laughs> Netflix, do it now. <laughs> I've got a, I've got the complete Firefly and Serenity sitting on my video shelf, untouched. We have the complete Firefly. And yes. It's going to remain untouched. We borrowed Firefly from our friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it was we were made to borrow it from them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had it for over a year now, nearly two years now, mm-hmm. and we still have not opened it up and watched it. <laughs> but it sits there, and it mocks us on the entertainment center. And every so often, we'll say to, our, to, say to each other, we really we need, need to, watch, to watch this and give this back to them. And maybe this year will be the year. We've got... We've got a we've got a nearly a month left before 2013. Maybe we can do it. <laughs> well, I've got Firefly and Serenity sitting on my shelf. My friend Don gave them to me. I don't know why, but they're sitting there. Unless somebody else wants to pull them down and watch them, they're going to sit there and sit there and <laughs> sit there because other than the Avengers, I have no use for Joss Whedon, as I've said before. Like, I I like his stuff. You know, I enjoyed Doctor Horrible. And okay, I, I may I may soften on that too. So it's like I like I enjoyed Doctor Horrible. I enjoyed the Avengers. I did not watch Buffy regularly, but every so often I'd watch an episode, and it was generally pretty good. I um, can't stand little teenage <laughs> girls who kick butt, and that's his thing. That's <laughs> a lot of fandom, actually. <laughs> I know. To me, it's a little bit more. It's it borders on the uh, you know. <clears throat> Those kind of guys. <laughs> and that's from the creepy old guy of Save or Die Podcast. What, is Storky on here now? <laughs> yeah. No, he's the other creepy old guy. <laughs> but, I mean, 
I never really got into Buffy. You know, every once in a while I'd watch one. But, you know, on the whole, most of what I have seen of Joss Whedon's, I've liked. So I figure once I ever, you know, start watching Firefly, I will probably enjoy it. I just have to sit down and do it. (laughs) Okay, okay. I'm sorry. Let me backtrack on Joss Whedon. (laughs) It's not just the, it's not the, the, you know, the teenage girls kicking butt. It's the angst. Angst. Anything that, anything that rubs up against things like Dawson's Creek and Anne Rice, you can Mm. twilight, you can have. It's a whole bunch of teenagers. I know. Angst. I don't watch teenagers on TV. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm an old man. I don't have to watch teenagers. <laughs> I don't care if one guy doesn't love the other girl and she's having problems over it while she's killing vampires. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's why she's killing vampires. She's working it out. Okay. Yeah. yeah anyway. I'm- anyway. Well, thank you for the horde of emails, Vic. Thanks, and- Vic. You are one guy. I want <laughs> you are a prolific guy. You are a guy, yes. Thank you. Well, hopefully, now that we have caught up, we'll be able to, you know, as he writes in, we'll be able to include an email with every show or two so we won't have the Vic show. Yeah. Well, <laughs> We're very sorry that we had to wait so long to get to your stuff. Well, except Unless something weird happens, we're probably only looking at one more Attack of the Clones for Dark Dungeons coming up. Okay, okay. I got a copy. Um, So we should have more time to cover emails in episodes. Oh, look for – go ahead. I was just going to say thank you to everyone who wrote to us. Yes. And And called in. Yes, we want – we want more of you to write to us, even if it means we have to do more email episodes because we can't keep up. Save that is a problem save. that we would love to yes. have. Saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And, and the phone number? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a grand tradition started by Vince. <laughs> it's on the announcement. It's on our website. You can find it there. And That's it's right. Go to our website. And a totally unrelated announcement. Uh, when James Moslowski publishes Petty Gods, download it. It's free, and it's got about five of my artwork pieces in there, including... Yes. I'm sorry, what? It, it was made in the tradition of the old Judges Guild, the, for the Unknown uh, Gods. Yes, and it's and I did Old Snicker, the God of Insults, who looks very familiar. Hmm. Yes, that, it does very small deities over very... Unusual things. You'll recognize that hockey puck. Anyway. um... (laughs) And on that tragic, awkward note. It's time to go. It's time to go. How are you headed down the road, Liz? I am headed down the road with a horde of kobolds. One of them is wearing a girdle of giant strength and is carrying me over his head with one clawed hand. Woohoo! Glenn? I'm heading down the road, you know, my arm around Vic Shade with a glass of rum in my hands, talking about how great this show is, and me, <laughs> and me in particular. And I'm, and I'm staggering down the road, checking the mailbag, making absolutely sure we finally caught up. Yes. And that makes the end for episode 62. Yes. Hope y'all had fun. Okay. Good night, everybody. Bye.